Father, we come to you now, and we ask that you would help us to feel the urgency of responding to the gospel as living sacrifices. Lord, make us eager to be renewed in our thinking and to give ourselves wholly to you. Make us ready to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for its lusts, for the lusts of the flesh. Lord, teach us what it is to live for you and help us to experience even now your kingdom, which is about righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Lord, help us to live out the gospel together here at the church, and we pray that you would do it in Christ's name. Amen. In one of Flannery O'Connor's stories, it's a story of, it's really tragic, it's awful, Um, it's a story of a family being in a car together, and the grandmother in the car is just a terrible person. She's She's complaining, and she's nagging, and she's self-centered, and she, she wants her own way. And the upshot of all of this is that because she's decided to bring her cat along when her son and daughter-in-law and the rest of the family just insisted that the cat not be brought along, and because she's acted as though she knows the way and she's gotten them off track, and then the upshot of all of it is that she causes an accident, and she uh, gets the family uh, stranded out in the middle of nowhere, off the path, and um, in the lead-up to all of this, they've learned that there's an escaped convict who's a murderer. And sure enough, they've been in an accident, and they're stranded in the middle of nowhere, and here comes the escaped convict who murders the grandmother's family and then puts a gun to her head. And in that moment of clarity, she realizes now what life is about. And she begins to speak the gospel of Jesus Christ to this convict, who then kills her. And then the convict says, she would have been a better woman all her life if there had been someone there every day to hold a gun to her head. The point of the story is, we don't want to live in such a way that we've lost sight of the gospel of Jesus And we've lost sight of how to love people, and it takes someone putting a gun to our head to make us realize what is actually important. We don't want to live lives that somebody can say, he would have been a better man all his life if there had been somebody there to hold a gun to his head. We want to live for what matters even when we don't have those drastic and awful situations that we're facing. That's a fictional story. Here's a true story. This book that's entitled To End All Wars by Ernest Gordon. It's a story about a World War II Japanese prison camp. And it's really a series of accounts of the way a revival broke out in this prison camp. And these these men began to see the love of Christ and experience the good good news of the gospel. And these prisoners of war then began to live out the gospel with one another. In one of these stories... There's a man named, named Angus who his, uh, his, his particular battalion, he and his, his uh, they, it's like they operated on the buddy system where they all took responsibility for one of their comrades in, in, the, in the battalion. They called it 
uh, they called one another their mucker, and this guy's mucker became gravely ill, and, and they thought that the idea was they were going to muck through everything together, through thick or thin or whatever. Well, this guy's buddy became gravely ill, and everyone gave him up for dead. They all thought he was going to die, but his buddy decided he's not going to die. And what his buddy began to do was to give him his ration of food. And then in these prison camps, as, as the prisoners could acquire things of value, whether it was a knife or, or the boots of someone who had died or anything, really, anything of value, they would sell these things to people that they could come in contact with. And then with that money, the little extra money they could make, they could buy some extra food, they could buy some medicine. Well, this guy, he began to find to, to find all kinds of things that he could sell for food and medicine. And people initially just thought he was being selfish until they realized that all the resources were going to the buddy. And the buddy began to get better. And then this guy, one day, just fell on his face and died. And when they examined him, they realized he died of starvation and exhaustion. He had worked himself to death and starved himself, giving his food and all of his effort to his sick friend in, in, the, uh, in the prisoner of war camp. And there's, a, there's another account of a man, um, an occasion when they, they came back from a work detail and the guards counted the shovels. And they thought that they were one short, the number of shovels that had been issued, and, and they thought that someone had stolen a shovel in order to sell it for, for money or whatever, or medicine or whatever. And as the guard began to pace back and forth in front of this work detail, uh, screaming and, and, and insisting that someone who had stolen the shovel needed to step forward, finally the guard, it's like he just went crazy, and he began to scream, all die, meaning he was going to kill this whole detail of men because of this lost shovel. And at that moment... Um, one of these soldiers stepped forward and said, I took the shovel. And, and the guard murdered him. The guard executed him right there. And then they go back into the camp and they recount the shovels and there was no shovel missing. This man gave his life for his comrades. This is what Paul is calling us to here in Romans 15 verses 1 through 7. Paul is calling us to the kind of life that recognizes, as this fellow Ernest Gordon puts it, commenting on the way that these men lived for one another. He, he speaks of the way that they, they recognized that selfishness and hatred and envy and jealousy and greed, self-indulgence, laziness and pride were all anti-life. On the other hand, love, heroism, self-sacrifice, sympathy, mercy, integrity, and creative faith were the essence of life. And these men recognized that, that all those good things are gifts of God, and they flow out of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So if we ask the question, how do we live out the gospel? How do we obey Romans 12.1 and offer our bodies as living sacrifices? How do we, Romans 13 verse uh, 8... Uh, sorry, verse 9, love our neighbors as ourselves and thereby fulfill the law. 
Paul has answered that question for us to some degree when he's called us, for instance, in Romans uh, 13, verse 14, to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's going to continue to answer that question here in Romans 15, verses 1 through 7. As we begin here, let me just draw your attention to the fact that in Romans 14, 1, he has said these words, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. And then look at 15, 7 where he says, therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Those two calls, 14.1 and 15.7, to welcome one another really bracket this whole section, which is all about how to handle the disagreements in the church. Disagreements between uh, people who have different ideas about what Christians can eat or what Christians can drink or what Christians can do on different days. And these different ideas, they flow out of different ethnic backgrounds. You've got Jews and Gentiles. They flow out of different understandings of, of how Christ has affected the way the Mosaic law applies to Christians. They flow out of all these kinds of differences. And what Paul is saying is, as he says in 14.1, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. So he wants Christians fundamentally to love one another. And he's been arguing that this is Christ-like, and he's going to continue that argument here. So in... in Romans 15, verses 1 through 3, he's going to, to urge us to live like Jesus because in Romans 15, 4, this is what the Bible teaches. And then in Romans 15, 5 through 7, this is the way that God empowers us to live. So there's kind of an, an outline, an overview for you. Verses 1 through 3, live like Jesus. Verse 4, because this is what the scriptures teach. And then verses 5 through 7, God will empower you to live this way. And I think the main point of what he's saying in this whole passage, is in verse 1, Romans 15, verse 1, where he says, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. And just to, to rehearse where we've been, Paul here explicitly identifies himself with those who are strong in faith. And the strong in faith, as we've been discussing, as we've been working through this passage, the strong in faith are those who recognize that if Jesus has declared all foods clean, well, then all foods are clean, and we can eat whatever we find before ourselves. So the old covenant laws, those have been nullified in Christ. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. And uh, by declaring all foods clean, Jesus makes it so that you don't have to keep kosher requirements in order to be pleasing to God. That's what Jesus has done. And he's also made it so that all days can be regarded as as all other days. We don't have to observe the Sabbath regulations here. And, and Paul identifies with the strong in faith who understand these things about what the Lord Jesus has done. But he also says, we who are strong in faith, we who are strong, have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. What are the failings of the weak? Well, it would be a, a kind of inability to get over a hang-up over the Mosaic food requirements. A, a, a recognition, okay, yeah, Jesus did declare those foods to be clean, but I just can't bring myself to eat that stuff. And I can't seem to get over the fact that it really bothers me to see you eat that stuff. And so Paul is saying, those of you who are strong, you need to bear with this. You need to love them patiently. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. I'm going to put that slightly differently. As Paul is going to argue here, what he's essentially saying is that people who are strong in faith 
have an obligation to be Christ-like. Now, why do I put it that way? Why do I say we have an obligation to be Christ-like? I put it that way because of what Paul's about to argue. But before we move on, let me just remind you of what we've seen in the passage. Look back, for instance, at verse 3 of chapter 14. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. So there's a a kind of judgmentalism that can come out of those who are weak in faith. And Paul is saying, even if they're judging you, you have an obligation to bear with them. And so I think one, one question that we can pose to ourselves here is when we encounter those with whom we disagree, when we encounter those who maybe sit in judgment over us, do we respond to them in Christ-like ways? Do the fruits of the Holy Spirit flow out of us when someone condemns us for holding to the teachings of Jesus? So Jesus says all foods are clean. Jesus is uh, our rest. He's the fulfillment of the Sabbath. We embrace all that. And maybe someone begins to sit in judgment over us because of our adherence to the Scriptures. And what needs to flow out of us in response to this is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and faithfulness and self-control. Against such things, there's no law. I think that's what Paul means when he says, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. What would pleasing ourselves look like in this context? I think think the kind of pleasing ourselves that he's objecting to is a kind of self-centered disregard for the weak. So they got to hang up about this. Well, I'm not concerned about them. I'm just going to eat whatever I want to eat with impunity. I'm, I'm going to have no regard for their conscience or for their qualms about this. And, and Paul has been arguing that's not how to conduct ourselves. At the end of chapter 14, he says, for instance, there in verse 20 of Romans 14, do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Because as he said in 14:17, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So pleasing yourself in certain circumstances can mean flaunting your freedom in Christ to the detriment of other Christians. He doesn't want us to do that. Look at verse 2. Paul says, Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Now in this context, I think pleasing the neighbor for the good to build him up It doesn't mean you take on the Mosaic Law of Moses. And it doesn't mean you take on the Old Covenant calendar and and you allow legalism to control your life. It doesn't mean that. I think it, it would mean that without haranguing, without berating, without arguing about opinions, quarreling over opinions, 14.1, you you explain, look, I think the Lord Jesus has declared all foods clean. And I think our rest is in Christ, and we're looking for a rest that's going to be fulfilled in the new heavens and new earth. And so we interpret the Old Testament differently. And I'm going to try to win you to that position by by communicating love for you and by trying to make you feel comfortable. So I'm not going to flaunt my freedoms in your face. I'm not going to disregard your concerns. I'm also not going to 
allow your legalism to control what we do in every circumstance, but, but what I'm going to try to do is build you up in faith. Verse 2, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. And then in verse 3, here's the live as Jesus lived. The explanation for this is, for Christ did not please himself. Now, before we look into how Jesus lived himself, let me just make a comment about how the love of Christ enables the strong to do this. The, the process that, that Paul is, is working from here is the way that Jesus has loved us, which enables us to love one another. So I would say to be loved by Christ is to be enabled to love others as he has loved us. To be loved by Christ is to be enabled. So if we don't feel that love for others, we need to reflect on the love of Christ for us. And Paul's about to help us with that here. But before, before I comment more on that, let me just say, this is why I will often say, parroting Mark Dever, the church is God's discipleship program. The church is God's discipleship. As we rub shoulders with one another in the church, as we, as we live up close and personal with one another, we're going to annoy one another. And when those annoyances come, this is when the love of Christ needs to start controlling us. This is when we need to start figuring out how to work through our differences in opinion without quarreling, and we need to start recognizing one another's concerns and, and loving one another through these things for mutual upbuilding so that we can build one another up in the Lord. We build one another up through Christ-like, self-sacrificial love. And when we recognize that that's how someone is loving us, that's what spurs us on to greater love, spurs us on to more good deeds. Now look at, look at verse 3. Paul writes here, Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproach you, reproached you fell on me. Now the first thing I want to note here is the way that he has said in 15.1, we have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. And then in verse 2, let each of us please his neighbor. And then in verse 3, for Christ did not please himself. And, and let's just reflect for a minute on what it would look like for Jesus to have pleased himself. It's almost unimaginable for us. As, as I was trying to get my head around this, it's one of those things where it's like, how do I even conceive of Jesus trying to please himself? Would it be him being a selfish God? That goes against everything about the character of God that we know, isn't it? He is altogether unselfish. He's not, he's not trying to hoard resources or abilities to himself. No, he's constantly overflowing in generosity. But this is what it would look like, I think, for Christ to please himself, for him to be selfish, for him to use his creation, for him to be sinful, for him to disregard the needs of others. And he, it's hard to even conceive of him doing any of those things, isn't it? That is not who Jesus is. So what did Jesus do? He didn't please himself. He came. It would have been a lot uh, happier to just stay up there in heaven, surrounded by the heavenly hosts, 
singing his praises, glorifying him for his majesty and and authority and power and, and goodness. And he came. And when he came, he became the focal point of the wrath of all the God-haters. Everyone with a beef against God, everyone who didn't like God's love or God's truth or God's instructions, all of their enmity and, and vile and hatred, all of their bile, what, all of that was directed at Christ. Jesus came and became the focal point of the wrath of all the God-haters. Why did he do that? Because he loved us and because we needed him. Now, to, to see this even more clearly, let's look at, how, let's look at the passage that, that, that Paul quotes here. Romans 15, 3, again, for Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Uh, Paul quotes this from Psalm 69. I would invite you to keep a finger here or one of these many pieces of paper that you may have in your Bible like I do in Romans uh, 14, 15, and then look back with me at Psalm 69. And I want to start reading at verse 6 because I think this really captures how Jesus came. And, and it also captures how we're to live, as Paul's about to say. But as we approach this, I also want to insist this is David's own personal experience. So let's just think for a moment about David. He has been anointed as king by the prophet Samuel, and he's tried to be faithful. He's a sinner. He failed. He failed spectacularly. Uh, with, he sinned with Bathsheba. He sinned by uh, having Uriah murdered. He, he sinned by not disciplining his son. He did a lot of bad things. And I think responding to his failures, but recognizing that he is still God's anointed king, he says this in, in Psalm 69, Verse 6, let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me. And we can identify with that, can't we? We know, we know how we can be trying to advance God's cause. We can be trying to share the gospel. We can be trying to work for the kingdom. And we're sinners through and through. And we stub our toes and we fall on our face and we're rude to people and we blow it. And David is, David is responding to that kind of thing in his life, saying, Let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me, O Lord God of hosts. Could we put those words on the lips of Jesus? How would, they, how would those words fit on the lips of Jesus? Well, I think with Jesus, it wouldn't involve any of his own sin or any of his own failures, but it could involve the fact that he looks so weak. He looks so unimpressive. And all the authoritative people, they look at him and they say, how could this be God's savior? He's hanging around with these fishermen. He, he's, he, he doesn't even have an education. And, and Jesus could say, let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me. Because he came in, in weakness and he's a stumbling block to the Jews and he's folly to the Gentiles who expect God's to be strong and powerful and proud. Let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me. And then, he, then he's, verse 7, For it is for your sake that I have borne reproach. Christ came and bore all the reproach of those who hated God for God's sake. 
And then he, he goes on, and then eventually you get down to verse 9. Look at verse 9, where David writes, For zeal for your house has consumed me. In that first line, I think in David's life, zeal for God's house consumed him in the sense that his whole life was devoted to the building of the temple. And it ate him up to want to build the temple. And then Jesus comes, and he intends to build a temple of the Holy Spirit, the church. I think this is why Jesus speaks of, of building, he, he speaks of building the church. I will build my church because it's going to be the temple of the Holy Spirit. And zeal for God's house consumes him, him in the sense that it leads to his death. And, and this text, that line is quoted in John 2, you know, when Jesus cleanses the temple and they say, what authority do you show for doing these things? And he says, um, uh, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it. And then his disciples later, after the resurrection, remember this text, zeal for your house has consumed me. And then the next line of verse 9, these are the words that Paul quotes in Romans 15, the reproaches of those who reproached you have fallen on me. This is true in David's life because during David's life, he's the focal point of the enmity of the haters of God. All of the seed of the serpent, if they could do anything, they would take David out. And it's the same with Jesus when he comes. The reproaches of those who reproached you have fallen on me. Now, how does this fit Paul's argument in Romans 15 verse 5? Well, what Paul is calling us to is Christ-likeness. And what Paul is saying is, as you contend for the truth, as you seek to hold on to everything that the Bible teaches, as you seek to make disciples of Jesus, go and, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, that's going to lead to some reproach, and teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded. You notice Jesus didn't say, hey, you can just teach them about substitutionary atonement and then leave out all this other stuff that I taught. That's all irrelevant. No, he said, teach everything that I've commanded. As you contend for everything that Jesus commanded, people are not going to like what you're teaching. And, and the haters of God, they're going to focus their enmity on you just like they focused it on Jesus, just like they focused it on David because you're trying to make disciples of Jesus. And sometimes it's going to feel, I think, like that enmity from the haters of God is creeping into the church with these people objecting about what we're eating and the, the days, the celebrations. And it's like Paul is saying, you need to love with Christ-like love. And you need to remember the way that Jesus loved us. And you you need to, we, we all need to remember the way that, yeah, Jesus, he could have stayed up there safe and happy and holy in heaven. But he came and the reproaches of those who reproached God fell on him and that's the mindset, that's the spirit, that's the attitude that we adopt as we love one another in the context of the church. This is the way that Christ laid down his life for us. So I think this is how the, the, the logic works. Paul is saying, um, because Christ came and bore reproach, the strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. And they have an obligation to be Christ-like, on behalf of the weak, and love them. And then Paul, kind of elaborating on this, he says in verse 4, so verses 1 through 3, live like Jesus, because verse 4, this is what the Scriptures teach. Verse 4, whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. I think Paul is saying something like this, the Scriptures are about Jesus. And the, even the Old Covenant 
even the Old Testament scriptures, they're pointing forward to Jesus. And there are so many places that we could go to to illustrate this. We could go to the book of Ruth and look at the way that Ruth and Boaz lay down their lives for others in the context of that book. And, and both Ruth, a woman, a Moabite woman, Ruth typifies the way that Christ would live. And Boaz typifies the way that Christ would live because they're mainly concerned about other people. And they're laying down their lives, not pursuing their own selfish ends, but laying down their lives for the benefit of others. I want to take you to Hebrews 11. Again, maybe stick a finger here, or you can just listen to what the author of Hebrews says about Moses. The author of Hebrews says this about Moses in Hebrews 11, verse 23 and following. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents when they saw that the child was beautiful, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, prince in Egypt, wealth, power, status. He refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. And then look at these next words in verse 25. Choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered, verse 26, the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. That's what Paul's talking about when he says, whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures, what Paul is saying is endure in this Christ-like laying down of your life for the benefit of others. Don't just please yourself. Jesus didn't please himself. Endure in laying down your life for the members of the body. Endure in that. And through that and through the encouragement of the scriptures, you'll have hope. Hope that God can change the minds of these people who are weak in their faith. Hope that God can cause them to bear fruit and strengthen their faith. And hope that we'll all go on together and reach reach the shore of the river. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. The Apostle Paul is telling us the Old Testament was written to encourage and instruct Christians. Don't let anybody tell you otherwise. It's a continuous story that finds fulfillment in Christ and the church and Paul is telling us that God's purpose in inspiring those Old Testament authors was to write for the instruction of the people that believe in Jesus. Whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So live like Jesus, verses 1 through 3, as the scriptures teach, verse 4, and as God empowers you, verses 5 through 7. Look at verse 5. Paul prays for the Romans. This is encouraging, isn't it? Let me, let me put it another way. Paul prays for his audience, which would include us. May the God of endurance and encouragement, the very things that the scriptures teach. God inspired the writers of the Old Testament. God is the God who empowers encouragement. God is the God who empowers endurance the very things that the Old Testament was written to accomplish in us. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such 
harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. What Paul is saying is, may, may the God who inspired the Old Testament so work in you that your unity will resound to the glory of the Lord Jesus. And it's not, it's not explicitly stated here, but in these, in these words, that together you may with one voice glorify, you, you actually have this, this little Greek phrase that if we were to render it, it uh, word for word literally, uh, we, we would understand the Apostle Paul to say something like, may this God grant you to think the same thing. Isn't that glorious? To think the same thing. What, what does that look like? Well, it looks like, like all of us agreeing that there is one living and true God who made the world. Everything came from his creative power. And there is one God who saves. There's one God who, who saved Israel. He chose Israel. He saved them at the exodus from Egypt. And he did all these things to prepare for the coming of the Lord Jesus. And then there is one Savior, as, as Paul puts it in 1 Timothy 2. There is one mediator between God and man. And it's as though Paul is saying, look, there's not some other God with some other heaven and some other Savior out there. There is one mediator between God and man. And we all agree on this. Isn't that glorious? Isn't that amazing? We all agree that there's one God who exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I, I know we have a lot of disagreements. But if we agree on the Trinity, and we agree on Jesus, and we agree on creation, and we agree on where we're going, that is a phenomenal amount of agreement that should not be taken for granted. We think that we agree on the ultimate purpose of all things. I dare say that nobody in this room is going to dispute with me that God's glory is ultimate. Anybody want to dispute with that idea? <laughs> I don't think there's, I mean, maybe there's some unbelievers here that, that don't agree with that. We, we want you to see how awesome God is and how worthy of glory he is. We, we want to convince you of all these things that we agree on, that we think the same thing about. And this is what Paul prays for the Christians to experience. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's our agreement on the gospel, the fact that there's one mediator between God and man that results in us loving one another this way. As I was reflecting on this, um, the Lord brought to mind things that I've read about these orchestras that sprang up in concentration camps. In the, in the Nazi death camps, and, and all, you, all you have to do if you want to read about this, just Google the words something like uh, concentration camp uh, symphony or something like that. The Nazis, they, they've brought these people to these death camps, camps and they're going to put them to death, but for various reasons, they allowed the musicians to get together. And then they even allowed on different, on different occasions for the mu musicians to get their instruments. And these people who all had death sentences. They all know the crematorium is over there. And they all know that that's where they're going. With, with the little strength that they had left, they spent hours and hours of their time rehearsing and training together and making together this glorious music that no one of these instruments could have accomplished on its own. 
I don't know if you've ever had the opportunity to play in some kind of a band. When I was in seventh grade, I was I played the saxophone for my high school or my we called it a junior high, my junior junior high uh, marching band, and I had this this music that that played this this um, series of notes that really didn't sound like music. And then we all practiced, you know, our own instrument, and then we all came together. All the different instruments came together, and I was astounded at how my series of notes that didn't make music fit with all the other instruments to contribute to this magnificent sound. That's what Paul's talking about here. That you may live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus. In accord with Christ Jesus, I think he's meaning laying down your lives for one another. In a, that's what's in accord with Christ Jesus. That together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what, that's what we're about. We, together we're about the glory of the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Whatever else characterizes us, I hope, I hope, I pray that the most prominent thing about us will be the glory of the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's why, that's why we're trying to be good stewards of the building and raise money. That's why we're trying to have an outreach event because we want people to experience this glory. That's why we hope to send teams to encourage people that have gone all over the world to try to take this message. That's why we, some of us, take up controversial issues that result in reproaches falling upon us because we're trying to make disciples of all nations for the glory of, our God, of the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's, it's all about God's glory. That's why, I hope, people rejoice to have long conversations with one another, try to work through different questions, different issues. That's why, I hope, sometimes we have to confront one another one of us strays into sin, somebody brings a confrontational word. That's why sometimes we have to put people out of membership of the church. It's why we, do, it's why we, hold to, we try to hold to everything the Bible teaches. That, that's what we're trying to do. Therefore, Paul says, welcome one another. Therefore, because you're after the glory of the Father, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. As we bear with one another in love, as we have long, difficult conversations with one another, as we bring areas of concern to one another, as we serve with one another, as we mutually sacrifice with one another, we are joining together for, for a cause that is so much better than making pretty music in the midst of a concentration camp. I mean, this world is kind of a, everybody here is going to die, and here we are trying to make music to the glory of God. And when I say make music together, I really mean we're trying to form character. We're trying to produce Christ's likeness. We're trying to bear fruit that redounds to the glory of Christ. We're all trying to row together for this great cause. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. And again, I think what we need is to reflect more on Christ's love for us individually and the way that he bore reproach for us and the way that he came for us and this is what enables us to welcome one another for the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, every good and perfect gift comes down from you. 
Lord, music is your gift to us. And the ways that people have loved us across our lives. Lord, we're so thankful for the way that you have provided for us and orchestrated our lives so that people have sacrificed for us. Lord, we pray that you would more and more enable us to think the same thing. More and more enable us to agree together about what the Bible teaches. More and more enable us to welcome one another. And Lord, we pray again that this community would see that we're Christians by the way that we love one another. And we pray that in the same way that you caused a renewal, a revival to break out in a, in a Japanese prisoner of war camp, Lord, we pray that you would cause that to happen here, that there would be so many displays of Christ-like, self-sacrificial love that people would find themselves renewed and transformed and, and eager to know more about Jesus. Lord, we ask that you'd do this for your glory. And we pray that you would cause us to experience that harmony, that experience of, of our squeaky little note being made glorious because of the way that it fits with everything else. Lord, we love you and we commit ourselves to you. And we pray for your help in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Spirit. Amen.